Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name's Steve. I am one of the leaders here, and um, I want to welcome you if you're a visitor. I'm glad you're here. Um, welcome to 2013. You guys ready? For <laughs> no. <laughs> ready for a new year. I wasn't even ready for, for a new morning. Um, and yet here we are with a whole new year in front of us. Um, it just keeps happening. Which is awesome. Um, as I was studying our text for this week, um, honestly, uh, it just seemed very appropriate um, as I was looking at it because um, beginning things, anytime you start something new, anytime you, you, you know, especially around the new year, you start thinking about how your life's been going and how you want it to go. And invariably, that leads you to start thinking about change. Changes you want to make, changes you need to make. And of course, um, we all know the very famous uh, pattern of behavior that that we've all at one point or another indulged in, the the pattern of New Year's resolutions. Anybody here make New Year's resolutions? Don't raise your hand. Um, You know, a lot of us do and then end up stopping because we kind of know how it goes, right? Jim Gaffigan um, tweeted on New Year's Eve. It it cracked me up. Um, This was (laughs) just before (laughs) New Year's Day. Um, This is great. I have an hour to lose 40 pounds, Um, which was a great reminder of all the resolutions we failed to keep in 2012, even, even as we are, you know, resolving all new resolutions for uh, 2013. You know, why is this funny? Because we get the irony, right? We all know what it is to make resolutions to change, and, and then we just don't do it, right? And, and New Year's resolutions, of, of, of all things, have become kind of the, the chief joke of that, because every year we kind of make almost the same exact resolutions, right? The first week of the year is the most crowded week in the gym. It really is. Those of you who go to the gym regularly... Um, you hate this time of year, right? Because you can't find a parking spot. The place is packed and you are just waiting and hoping for everyone to fail in their resolutions Um, (laughs) because you want your parking spot back, right? And you know, if you've been around for a while, that you really just have to wait a couple weeks. Um, You'll get your spot. Um, All of that incoming traffic will, will pass, right? Here's the deal, you guys. We, we all know how hard it is to change. We know that change is incredibly difficult. And honestly, some of us have been defeated in our attempts to change and our resolutions that we have really gotten to the point where we've just given up hope. Most of us don't make New Year's resolutions. 
Not because we don't have things we need to change, but because we know we're not going to change them. We don't make the resolutions, not because we're wise, but because we're jaded. We know the failure that awaits us. And making a resolution simply puts an exclamation point at the end of our inability to change ourselves. And for some of you, your experience of failure has become the prison that keeps you from moving toward any kind of success. You've failed so many times. You've tried to change this behavior, this pattern, this thought, this, and you failed so many times that you're afraid to re-engage. You're afraid to try and change. It's easier to, um, I don't know, give in to despair than to hope. Because every time there's a hope of change, there's a renewed um, fear of the pain of failure. Um, for others of you, you've been tremendously successful in your attempts to change things about yourself. You have become a pinnacle of self-discipline, and you are able to push through and to focus, and you're finding the deep, deep disappointment of getting the things that you thought you wanted and finding out they weren't the things you needed. Um, what's the point? The point is this. We all need change, but most of us are pursuing the wrong change. We all need change. The problem is we're pursuing the wrong things in the wrong way. And so here's kind of the message that we're going to hit this morning and over the next three weeks. I really believe that we should make resolutions. It's really popular to slam resolutions. It's really popular to just like, and, and for good reason, honestly. Re- resolutions are not the solution. But resolutions aren't the problem either. Resolutions can actually be very valuable aids to pursuing genuine and worthwhile change in our lives if we approach them right. I, I believe that we need to redeem our resolutions. And so we're actually this morning beginning a a three-week kind of mini-series about resolutions, about how we change, how we deal with these areas in our lives that we know um, we need to either start or stop. And so some of the questions we'll be tackling, how do we make resolutions in the right way? How do we um, set goals in ways that, that honor God? How do we set spiritual goals without becoming legalistic and simply conforming a behavior instead of actually being transformed? How, how can we really, truly, lastingly change? How can we stop being disappointed and get what we're really chasing? Um, so this week, this week, what we're going to do is is unpack kind of the problem we're facing. Our text um, actually leads us. It's a, it's a passage that deals with this very thing. And, and so this week we're going to be looking at the, the, the nature of the problem that we face. We're going to look at, at why our resolutions fail, even when they succeed. Next week we're going to be taking a look um, at, at a very practical aspect of, of how we um, engage the gospel 
so that the gospel changes us instead of us simply changing ourselves. How the gospel empowers true, genuine, lasting change in our lives and gives us hope for change in areas where we feel completely helpless. And then the week after that, we're going to be taking a look at what life looks like when we actually engage that kind of change. When the gospel grips our heart and changes us instead of us simply changing our heart um, or, or changing our behavior to try and, and, and pursue change. What does it look like when, when, when you have real, gospel-empowered, God-empowered change in your life? So that's where we're going over the next three weeks. I know there are, all, there are things in, in all of our lives that, that we would like to change and, and things in all of our lives that, honestly, we need to change. Um, but let's be honest up front. Change is hard. Change is incredibly difficult because in the end, what we're really talking about is not just a change in our behavior, but a change in our heart. We're not just talking about a change in our, our habits, but a change in our desires. We're talking about the kind of change that honestly we are incapable of producing for ourselves. It's a change that we all need and desperately crave. And it's exactly the kind of change that the Bible calls us to. And the gospel um, gives us the ability to pursue. So that's where we're going this morning and, and over the next three weeks. And, and I hope that you'll um, join us as we kind of move through this study of how we change. All right, let's take a look at our, our passage and um, let's see what it has to say to us. Take a look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Um, right off the bat, what I want you to hear is Paul's basically saying you need to change. You were walking in a specific way in your life. You, you don't do that anymore. <laughs> change. Don't walk like you used to walk. Now, obviously, he is speaking to Christ followers. When you become a Christ follower, things fundamentally change in, in your life's goal, uh, in its purpose, and it's an, in its an empowerment. And, and as a believer, what he's saying is, don't walk like you used to walk. Faith in Jesus isn't just a change in status. When, when you believe in Jesus. It, it, it's not just a free ticket to heaven. It, it is um, going to ultimately not just change your status, but change your character. God loves us as we are, but he won't leave us as we are. <laughs> he, le- he loves us too much for that. When we become Christ followers, we're, sign- we're signing up not just to eventually go to heaven. We're signing up for God to invade our lives now and start changing us now. Um, and that's going to ultimately challenge us. And that's why Paul says, stop walking through life like Gentiles. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase. Um, you know, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. That word Gentiles is a Greek word that simply means nations. And it was used by the Jews to identify everybody who wasn't them. And it was often used as a term of, of, of a derogative term, right? There's us, the insiders, and then there's them, all the people out there that, that are defiled and, and unclean, right? 
and, and we've talked about this in the past, that, that Jewish ceremonial rites, many of them very simply had to do with them washing away the defilement of having to deal with people who were non-Jewish. They would come home and wash their hands, not so that they could kill the bacteria on their hands, but because it was their symbolic way of washing away the defilement of dealing with all of these people that were not on the inside of the covenants, right? They saw them as defiling and the source of the problem. And honestly, a lot of us approach this passage with that same mindset, which is why passages like this a lot of times put people off. Because what they read into this is some sort of elitist Christian language that basically says they're the problem out there, don't be like them. Stop behaving like all those evildoers. Stop acting like, and get your, get your, get your stuff straight, right? Stop being a mess and start dressing right and talking right and acting right. That's not what he's talking about at all. Um, there's there's a wordplay going on here that I think we need to understand. You need to realize, first of all, that, that the Ephesians were Gentiles. <laughs> they were not a Jewish community. It was a Gentile, non-Jewish community. So when he says to them, no longer walk like the Gentiles, what he's saying is, no longer walk like who you used to be. He, he's taking that word and he's infusing it with a new meaning. What he's saying is, is don't walk like you used to be. You used to be an outsider. You used to to be separate from the commonwealth of Israel. You used to be outside of the covenants of promise. God was doing this incredible thing with the nation of Israel by by creating covenants with them, making promises to them, and and bringing the Messiah through them, and, and all of these things. And you used to be outside of that. Stop walking as an outsider. Stop walking like somebody who is outside of the covenant promises of God. Stop walking as an orphan because you have been adopted into the family of God. Stop walking like the person you were before you believed in Jesus. You've believed the gospel. You're now in the family of God. You are now a son of God, a daughter of God, adopted into the family of God. You are the ultimate insider. Don't keep walking like outsiders. Don't walk through life like people who don't know God. That's what he's saying. Stop living your life. Stop making decisions as if your faith had no relevance to those decisions. Stop making value choices and and. and, and just stop looking at life from a perspective that's not true to who you are now that you are a follower of Christ. One of Paul's favorite phrases, a quote from the Old Testament, is, is that the just shall live by faith. And it's used in, 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 in several of his letters, and he quotes it from the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. And it's a, word, it's a phrase that is loaded with meaning. It means this, the just, those who have been justified, those who have been declared right by God, shall be made alive by faith. And that's the gospel right there. That's the gospel. We're all sinners in need of something outside of ourselves. Our greatest problem outside of Christ, honestly, is God. Because God's holiness is not an invitation to us, it is a threat. Because His holiness will consume our sin. And if we are not forgiven 
If we have not uh, believed in Christ, um, then, then his holiness, instead of an invitation to life, is actually a threat to us. Because God, by his very nature, must consume and destroy everything that is not holy, that is not of his character. When we believe, when we, in other words, there's an offer through Christ, an offer of grace, of unmerited favor. You can be forgiven. You can be loved, not because you're lovable, but because Christ was lovable in your stead. Christ took your place in judgment so that you could take his place in blessing. That's the promise of the gospel. And when you simply come in faith, not performing for God, but trusting that Christ has performed for you, you are made just. The just shall live by faith. They're made alive by simply trusting in the finished work of Christ. And they are justified, made right. But, but it means much more than simply you will be justified and one day you'll be able to stand before God. It means that the just shall live their lives by faith. Those who are justified by believing in Jesus will find that their faith informs everything in life. If you are a follower of Christ, it is not just about you going to heaven someday. It is about God getting heaven into you now. It is about him changing who you are. We are to no longer walk as those who are outsiders, making decisions as if our, our lives were, were broken into little compartments. You know, I've got my, my faith compartment, and then I've got my work compartment, and then I've got my family compartment, and then I've got my, my whatever, entertainment compartment. When we become followers of Christ, that um, identity affects every decision in our lives. The fact that we are children of God, insiders to the covenant of promise, standing in the grace of God, informs every decision in life. Don't keep walking like an outsider. Our faith in Jesus informs every decision. Now, look at the end of that verse. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, as outsiders do, in the futility of of their minds. That word futility, interesting word. Something that's futile is something that is ineffective. Something that is futile is something that cannot produce the results that you're trying to, to get with it, right? It, it's futile, right? To, to <laughs> uh, uh, the illustration, I installed a dishwasher in my house yesterday. And um, there are moments when you're laying there on the ground and you're exhausted and you don't want to get up to go get the right tool, so you just grab whatever's there, right? You need something hammered in, so you grab the screwdriver, right? It's futile to use the wrong tool to accomplish the right goal, you know? And, and what he's saying is that unbelievers, as unbelievers, we're, we're trying to solve life's problems with futile tools, ineffective tools, tools that cannot produce what they promise to produce, we, we are engaging the problems of life with, with, with solutions that aren't solutions. They're, they're futile. They're ineffective. As, on a, as unbelievers, we were on a quest we couldn't complete. We, we were trying to solve a puzzle, but the key piece was missing. Why? Because ultimately we were trying to find outside of God what only can be found inside of God. We were trying to produce change in our lives And the change that we desperately needed was a change that we simply were powerless to produce. Take a look at verse 18. They, 
Gentiles, which the they there is us, outside of Christ, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. See, at the heart of every problem in our life, at the heart of every problem in our life, is a deeper spiritual problem. Most resolutions that we make deal with areas that are obvious that we want to change, right? Most common resolutions deal with weight, diet, exercise, health, self-control, money, personal discipline. Let me ask you something. Why do we overeat? Or, or why do we um, overexercise? Why, why are you an impulse spender? Or, or a compulsive saver? So you may make resolutions to address those problems, but I'm telling you that there's a deeper problem fueling those problems. There's a spiritual problem at the heart of every problem. At the heart of all these things, ultimately, is a spiritual problem that we don't have the capacity, the ability to address in our own power. We're futile with the tools that we bring to the table. We are, outside of Christ, they are darkened in their understanding. (laughs) Another kind of vivid imagery, right? The lights have been turned off. We can't see clearly where we want to go or how to get there, right? I mean, honestly, if you were to ask the average person, why are you alive? They're going to have a really hard time answering that. Not, not what are you doing with your life, not what do you hope to accomplish with your life, but the very simple question, why? Why do you exist? Why are you alive? What is your purpose? Most of the time when we ask that question, we get very vague answers because people simply don't know why they're alive. They can tell you what they hope to accomplish or experience in their life, but they have no idea of the purpose of their lives. Um, If you don't know why you're alive, how are you going to know how to be alive? Our, Our understanding has been darkened. We can't see clearly in the most fundamental questions of life. And if we can't see clearly in the most fundamental questions of life, why is it surprising to us that we can't see clearly in how to solve the problems of life. We keep trimming the branches and, and, and trying to eliminate the fruit, but we never get to the root. We, we keep trying to rearrange the furniture, but the problem isn't the furniture. The problem is the foundation. See, the real issue, the real issue is at the heart of this verse. It's that we've been alienated from the life of God. Verse 18, it says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. You guys, this is, this is the problem under every problem. We are alienated from the life of God. To put it in, in biblical language, sin is our universal problem. And by that, I'm not talking about individual discrete sins. See, as Christ followers, we want to identify a single pattern of sin in our life that's the cause of all of our problems. If I could just stop doing this, 
If I could just eliminate this behavior, if, if I could just stop thinking in this way, we, we want to think about it in terms of discrete lines of sin or discrete behaviors that can be isolated, identified, trimmed. I'm not talking about discrete sins in our lives. I'm talking about a universal human condition that we are separated from the life of God because of a universal rebellion against God. Our first parents rebelled against God. They looked at God and basically said, you are the giver of life, but we want to find life outside of you. We want to be the center instead of revolving around you as the center. And, and as a result of their choice, every human that's ever been born has been born with what we call inherited sin. That same nature of rebellion against God. That's why you never have to teach a child to be self-centered. You never have to teach a child to lie. You never have to teach a child to be selfish. You must, for the rest of their lives, teach them to not exercise the natural inclinations of their heart. Because the natural inclinations of our heart are continually toward driving ourselves to the center. Our universal problem is that we're separated from the life of God. And what I want you to hear is this. We were created for the life of God. Our deepest needs were created to be met in our Creator. God created us for Himself in His own image. Not so that he could then like leave the earth and go do something else, but so that he could live life with us, pouring out his life into us. We were designed to live for his glory in the overflow of his joy. We've been cut off from that. Is it any surprise that that's created a mess? Our deepest need is not being met because we've been alienated from the deepest source of life. You want to know why we overeat? It's because we're trying to feed an appetite that can't be fed. You want to know why we are compulsive in our over-exercising? It's because we are desperately trying to achieve a level of acceptance that can only be met in the unconditional outpouring of the acceptance of God? Why do we impulsively spend or, or compulsively save? It's because we're trying to meet needs, deep needs, that can't be met with money. No matter how much we save, it's never enough to give us the security that only God can give us. No matter how much we spend, it'll never bring us the pleasure we, we crave which is the pleasure of the outpouring of God's favor and love in our lives. Why do we look at pornography? Why do we escape into fantasy? Even though we hate it at times and walk away from it more dissatisfied than we walked into it. Why are we driven by anxiety? Why are we compulsively driven to get people's approval, people we don't even know and don't even like? It's because we're trying to feed a very deep appetite that can't be fed in these ways. It's, it's the futility of our minds. We're trying to bring the tools that we have at hand to solve a problem we can't solve. We have been alienated from the life of God. That is our deepest problem and our deepest need. 
We're separated from the life of God, the very thing we were created to live in, find our center in. And so we spend our lives trying to get from things what only God can give. We spend our lives trying to get from, from relationships or experiences or success or money or sex or whatever it is that we're pursuing what only God can give. God is life, and he is the source of all that is good. And because of our sin, we are dead, separated from God, separated from life, spiritually dead. And ultimately what we have is a problem of appetite. Just because we're dead doesn't mean that we no longer crave the thing we were created to consume, which was the goodness, the character, the joy, the beauty of God. And so we try to feed that appetite with everything that isn't God. And why do we keep doing that? You guys have heard the, the definition of insanity is, is doing the thing you've always done, expecting to get something different than you've always gotten, right? You just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again as if somehow you're going to get a different result than you did the last million times. Why do we keep running into that wall? Why do we keep falling into that ditch? Why do we keep consuming the wrong things, knowing they ultimately are not going to satisfy the deep appetite that drives us? According to the text, it's ignorance. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The word ignorance seems like a harsh word. It seems almost like an insult, but think about what it truly means. What it means is that there's something we need to know that we don't know. When you're ignorant of something, it means that, that there is something that you desperately need but don't have, a piece of truth, of knowledge, of insight, right? We are ignorant, darkened in our hearts. We have a lack of knowledge, a lack of wisdom to know how to diagnose ourselves and to know what tools to bring but the challenge of this is that it's not just a matter of learning the right things, right? It's not just, okay, we can put on a seminar and I'll give you the right information and that right information will somehow solve the ignorance because this ignorance isn't rooted in our intellect. This ignorance is rooted in our hearts. At the end of that verse, it says that, that um, we are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Our ignorance is rooted not in our lack of knowledge, but in our hearts bent, determined bent to rebel against God. We are determined to be ignorant. We are determined to continue to make ourselves the center instead of God. Our rebellion against God is what ultimately drives our hardness of heart. Our ignorance is rooted in our desperate attempt to live life without God. Let's just put it that way. We desperately want to live our lives without God. We want to live our lives according to our wisdom, according to our choices. We want to command our own future. We don't want to submit. We don't want God to be the center. We want to be the center. We want things to go our way according to our plan. We want to achieve our goals in our way. See, sin is not a passive, exist, uh, passive reality about us. It is an active force within us. An active force that keeps pushing us to say, I, I, 
I, I. I must be the center. I must get the attention. I must get the glory. I must be noticed. I must achieve. I need to be the center because sin desperately calls out. If you are not the center, you're not worthwhile. If you don't get what you want, you'll never have what you need. Sin is ultimately a rejection of God as God. And so we don't submit, we don't follow, we don't give ultimate glory to God. We want God and others to submit to us, to follow us, to make us the center. We want the ultimate glory. We want our lives to stand as a testimony to our strength, to our wisdom, to our intellect, to our creativity, to our wisdom. This is an issue of the heart. And because of this, our hearts are hardened to the truth. We go through life exchanging one pathology for another, doing the same stupid things over and over and over and over again, hitting our heads against the same exact wall, getting the same exact results we've always gotten, but going back and doing it again. Why? Because our sin drives us. We keep doing what we've always done, thinking we'll actually get something different. We are self-deceived. And the root problem continues to root its way into our heart. Verse 19 says that this has a progressive result in our lives, this hardening of the heart and then the pursuing of things in a self-centered way. Verse 19, they have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The result is that this hardness increases. And it, and it becomes a callus. You guys know what a callus is. He's being metaphorical here when he talks about the callousness of our heart. A callus is, is when, by repeated use, your skin grows hard, right? If you are repeatedly doing the same behavior, you will grow calluses on your skin because that repeated use builds up a, a hardness, which is incredibly helpful when you're working in the yard or on your car or or you know, climbing a climbing wall or, or doing whatever it is. that it, It's very good in, in the physical sense. It's deadly in the spiritual sense. The hardening of the skin is often a good thing. The hardening of your heart is never a good thing. What, is, what does a callus do? A callus ultimately makes you feel less, doesn't it? And that's the benefit of calluses on your hand, right? You can get out there and you can pull weeds, those gardeners, you know, like if you, and I, I experienced this. I used to be a gardener. I, for a while, I had a landscaping business, and, and my hands grew hard. And it was awesome because you could walk into a yard, just grab a young sapling and pull it right out of the ground, and your hands were fine, right? I tried to do that the other day and just rip the skin off my hands, right? Calluses are good things if, if you're repeatedly having to use your hands in ways that, that ultimately require you to, to have that protection. But think about what that means for your heart. Calluses of the heart progressively and increasingly deaden you to the feelings of genuine life. When we pursue the blessings of life outside of a relationship with the giver of life, our hearts become hard. Things start dying. We feel less. Now, some people think that's a good thing because one of the things that you notice first is that you start feeling less shame. You're just not ashamed about things that used to bring you shame. You're just not that concerned about things that used to, you know, like things that really just kind of like shocked you or horrified. They just don't matter anymore. 
they're not that big of a deal, right? It takes greater and greater amounts of things to shock you, to shame you, which means it takes greater and greater amounts of things to hurt you. Because shame is painful. Nobody wants to experience shame. And so there is a sense in which we actually pursue hardening because we don't want to feel shame. We don't want to feel that pain. And so the deadness comes in, and some of us actually run to the deadness because it's easier to die than to change. It's easier to grow hard of heart than to keep dreaming of change. The challenge is this, you guys. As we die to the things that hurt, we also die to the things that make us alive. We become more and more dead to joy, more and more dead to delight. Not only do you experience shame less, you experience joy less. And so you are driven into a deeper and deeper experience of what is in fact destroying you to keep finding something that will feed your deep need. That's why it says that they give themselves over to sensuality. They become callous and they are giving themselves up progressively to a greater and greater degree to sensuality. Now, the word sensuality is not the same as sexuality. Sexuality is included in that, but but sensuality basically means everything that feels good. Everything that ultimately brings us pleasure and makes us feel good about ourselves. It means a continual pursuance of those things that ultimately make you feel good. It could be sex. And some of you have been down that road and you know, as you become more and more dead, more and more callous, what a destructive and degrading road that becomes. Whether it is actual physical sexual addiction or pornographic use. But I want you to see that it can be way more than that. For some people, it's not sex, it's success. They need greater and greater levels of personal, self-centered, self-glorifying success to feed an appetite of feeling worthwhile. It could be affirmation. I need more and more and more from the people who know me and more people to know me to tell me that I am wonderful, to tell me that I am worthwhile, to tell me that I am a success, to tell me that I am something. It could be the path of control. It could be the path of money. It could be, do you understand that it could be anything? Sensuality covers all the bases, whatever it is that you're pursuing that you think is ultimately going to make you happy. As we pursue that and take those good things, they're all good. Sex, money, success, affirmation, they're all good. But as we pursue those good things, but in the process, turn them into ultimate things. The things that will ultimately justify our existence. The things that will ultimately meet our deepest needs. We destroy the very things that are good. And we try to find outside of God what only God can give. We grow greedy. That's what it says in our text. We grow greedy because we need more and more and more. Because as we become callous, we experience less and less and less. A callous will make you feel less shame and hurt, but will also make you feel less joy and delight. And that's why Paul is calling us. That's why Paul is commanding us to stop. Stop walking like 
the Gentiles. Stop walking as if you were an outsider. Stop making the decisions of your life absent from your faith in Christ. Christ follower, listen to me. Your faith in Christ can and should inform every decision in life. Not as a bondage, but as a source of freedom. Not as something that will ultimately keep you from joy, but something that will release you to joy. Paul's calling us to stop walking as if we didn't believe the gospel. Christ follower, believing the gospel is not just about you getting right with God in some future cosmic existence. It's about progressively you experiencing your rightness with God now and him making you come alive. See, the gospel diagnoses our problem, but more than that, it has the power to cure it. The gospel not only diagnoses why our resolutions, our efforts at self-change fail, it also provides the solution. It also provides us a way to actually enter into genuine, life-lasting change. Look where we go in verse 20. He's, we've, been in dark, well, <laughs> we've been in a dark spot, all right? The, these verses have just basically opened up our hearts and exposed a lot of darkness, right? And then we get to verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. In Christ, we find light in the darkness. In Christ, we find hope when we are hopeless. In Christ, we find help when we are helpless. Think about the message of the gospel is. It is a message of God solving our greatest problem without any help from us. What's our greatest problem? Our greatest problem is our sin before God. We come before the cosmic creator of all things, the judge of all that is right, the universal sovereign God, and we stand before him as cosmic traitors, rebels, those that would dethrone him unable to change our past, unable to change our future, completely helpless in our sin. But God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent a hero that would solve our greatest problem. He sent his son who would ultimately so be fully identified with our sin that he would die in our place, crushed in our judgment, so that when he rose again to new life, it proved that God was fully satisfied in regard to our sin and we could stand in his righteousness. We were helpless helpless, not just needing help, helpless. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we've been made alive together with Christ. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Why do we think the rest of our lives will be any different? Why do we think we can fix ourselves? Do you understand that most New Year's resolutions are honestly our little self-salvation projects that get in the way of the gospel? They're our attempts to solve our problems in our way. We're going we're gonna to bring to bear the weight of my self-discipline. Really? I am going to be resolved. Really? I can fix this. Really? If you couldn't fix the greatest problem of your life, The deepest root problem that caused the other problems, you think you can fix the others? 
And, and if you have the solution to the greatest problem, why wouldn't we go to the gospel to find the solution to all the rest of our problems? See, in the gospel, we have the promise not just of forgiveness of sins, but deliverance from sins. Life change. We have the promise of hope. Listen to me. Some of you are desperate in despair. Some of you have given up hope for change. And I'm telling you, you don't believe the gospel. You underestimate the power of God. You don't understand the power of resurrection. The gospel meets you in your deepest need. And it brings power to bear where you are most helpless. God can solve your problem with self-discipline or fear or rebellion or addiction. Because here's the deal. What you really need in all of these points of challenge is the life of God. What you desperately crave is the voice of God approving you, loving you, feeding you, strengthening you, empowering you. That is your deepest need, and the gospel is your greatest solution because you are no longer alienated from the life of God, Christ follower. As a believer in Jesus, I don't care what you did last night. If you were believed in Jesus, you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. You are made right with God. You are a son. You are a daughter. And that new identity in Christ is the solution for overcoming all the other challenges in your life. Listen to me. God has a special love for you. It is an I am for you love. I am for you love. That's God's love for you. Yeah, but Steve, when I do this, I feel, I know. God's love doesn't change. I am for you. That is God's attitude towards you, Christ follower, at all times. And it never changes. Because Christ has won for you an acceptance you could never win for yourself. An identity you could never claim for yourself. A level of acceptance you could never achieve for yourself. In Christ, you are as right as Christ. And God loves you with an I am for you love that will meet you in your deepest need. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Next week, we're going to dig into the rest of this passage. And Paul's going to talk about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And what we're going to do is we're going to start talking about very practically how we talk about, take the principles that we explored this morning and put them into active practice in your life. How do you as a follower of Christ not just know the truth, but start living in the power and the freedom of that truth? So come back next week as we continue to unpack it.